We're going to start a new series. It's a three-week series, Thermometers and Thermostats, a vision series. We're going to be talking about our vision statement, reach up, rise up, reach out, and we're going to be looking at it from the perspective of the difference between a thermometer and a thermostat. So it's kind of a modern parable. We'll talk a little bit more about that. So here's my question. Can you tell that this world is messed up? Are you aware of that? That this world is messed up. And not just like globally, but like we're messed up too. You know, like can you tell that you, you might have some issues? Maybe there's your workplace or your school or your family. There's issues. There's things that aren't working right. There's things that are messed up. You know, we can see that things aren't working perfectly, that there are problems in this world, that there are issues and, and trials and that things are broken. So if you can tell that it's messed up, then you're a thermometer. What does a thermometer do? A thermometer tells the temperature. It's 40 degrees and rainy. But there's something better than being a thermometer. Because a thermometer, again, can just tell the temperature, hopefully accurately. Sometimes we think we can tell the temperature and we're a little off, you know. Hopefully more or less accurately we can tell the temperature. But there's a danger in only being a thermometer because what will happen is you notice that everything's messed up. You realize the weather is terrible. You realize that your life has these problems. And then instead of being able to change anything, we can stuck just being an angry thermometer. I don't like it like this. And just be mad. But instead, what we want to do is become a thermostat. A thermostat includes the skills of a thermometer in being able to tell what temperature it is. But there's an added ability to the thermostat in that it can change the temperature. So you can increase the temperature if it's too cold. You can decrease the temperature if it's too hot. The thermostat can change the temperature. And that's where we want to get. We want to get to the place where we are able to change the temperature, where we can make a difference in this world, where we don't just notice the problems that are there, notice the problems in our society, notice the problems in us personally, notice the problems at our workplace or our school or in our family with our relationships. We don't just notice those problems, but we're actually able to do something to make it better. So how do we go from being a thermometer to a thermostat? The first thing is to know that we are supposed to be thermostats, not just, you know, people who notice that things aren't right. Does the world need more angry, disgusted Christians? No, the world does not need more. Christians are like, this is messed up. Like, we don't need more of them. We need more Christians who can actually change something, who can bring love into a situation of difficulty, who can bring peace into a situation of anxiety, who can bring stability into a situation where there's difficulty, who can bring clarity about God when there's confusion. We need more people who can make a difference in the world than people who can just notice that it's messed up because it doesn't accomplish anything to notice that it's messed up. And we're called to be thermostats. We're called to be the salt and light of the world. Let's read from Matthew chapter 5. This is from the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is saying this, Matthew 5, starting in verse 13. He's saying to the masses, this is the Sermon on the Mount. This is said to the masses. He says, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. So here he's saying, we're the salt of the earth. And Biblically wise, salt often represented 
a lasting thing. You know, salt was a preservative. And so if they wanted something to continue, then they put salt on it. And it got a symbolic meaning. Like if they were really mad at some city and they destroyed it, then they would throw salt on it and say, we're preserving the destruction of this city. It's never going to rise again. That was the symbolic meaning of throwing salt on it. So salt is a preservative. And so if salt fails to be able to preserve, fails to be able to make a difference in the world, then it's not worth anything. It's only worth being trampled. So if we're to say that salty salt is a thermostat and unsalty salt is a thermometer, then what does Jesus think about a thermometer who can't do anything to change anything? It's not worth much. And in fact, if you can't change anything, life is very frustrating. And then you're difficult to be around and it can get to be a mess. Instead, we want to be able to make a difference. And then Jesus continues, verse 14. You are the light of the world. We're to bring light into darkness. This world is is messed up. There's hard things here. We're not just supposed to look at a dark world and go, wow, that's dark. Stupid dark world. That's not what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to shine light into the darkness and make the dark world lighter. We're to help. We're to make a difference. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. So we're to make a difference, to light things up, not be hidden. You know, let your little light shine. In verse 16, in the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. So here Jesus is saying specifically, how do we be the light of the world? We do good things. We represent God well. And then people notice that and they are then drawn to God themselves. They'll see your good deeds and then praise your Father in heaven. So we're here to make a difference. Then in John chapter 15, Jesus here is speaking to his disciples and it's a very clear, obvious indication that we're to make a difference in this world. John chapter 15, starting in verse 1. Jesus is is kind of giving an analogy sort of parable. He says, I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. While every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. So Jesus is is talking about a grapevine and branches off of the grapevine. Some of the branches bear fruit, some don't. The ones that don't bear fruit get clipped. The other ones get pruned. And what is fruit? Fruit is making a difference in this world. That's what fruit is, whatever that may mean. You know, there's all kinds of different ways to make a difference. But making a difference is bearing fruit. And so we need to be bearing fruit. Let's keep reading this. It's an expectation. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not remain in me, he is like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. So we want to avoid that piece, right? We want to be avoiding getting snipped off, withering, and thrown into the fire. That's bad. We don't want to build a theology around that. But here's the deal. Be motivated to make a difference in this world. You're here to make a difference. You're here to make a difference for something. When I was in Florida on vacation some years back, 
I went to a Sunday night service, and the pastor was talking about when he was younger, he wanted to change the world. And now he was middle-aged, and he realized that wasn't going to happen. And so he was kind of feeling bad about the fact that he hadn't had the impact he wanted to have in his life. And it was a big church. I mean, I don't know. It seemed impressive to me. But he said, you know what? Maybe I can't change the whole world, but I can change my world. I can change my relationships. I can change my family. I can change my workplace. I can shine a light in my world. So that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to change my world. And if we all do that, you know, if you're not the next Billy Graham, be the next you. (laughs) And shine the light in your world. Make a difference in your world. Bear fruit in your world. Verse 7, if you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given you. I could go a little deeper into that verse, but here's the deal. If I ask for a Lamborghini because I just really, really like Lamborghinis, I'm not praying along God's will. You know, if I ask for a church plant to function and to reach a community, now I'm praying along God's will, and I believe that'll be answered. So we need to pray the right prayers, not selfish prayers, but kingdom prayers. Then those are the things that are given to us. Verse 8, it is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. So we bear fruit, we, we change this world not for our glory, but for God's glory, to make a difference for the kingdom of God and to help people love and worship God. So how do we go from an angry thermometer to a thermostat that's full of peace? How do we do that? I mean, don't we all want to change the world? We all want to make a difference. How do we do that? Well, that's the basic idea behind our vision statement. It's a simple, concise way for us to see what do I need to do personally in order to be able to change this world. And there's three steps. Reach up, rise up, and reach out. This is our vision statement. So we'll be covering each one, reach up, rise up, reach out, through the next three weeks. First one, of course, is reach up. And the tagline for that is, a real relationship with the living God is available to you. God's plan is that you have a real relationship with Him. Not just a relationship with church, not just a belief system, not just a hope for heaven, but a real relationship with Almighty God. A real relationship with the living God is available to you. So in order to have that relationship, you first have to make contact, right? You've got to start that relationship. I remember when I met my wife, you know how you, you start a relationship, it has to start on a particular day. We were both working at an outdoor theater company. It was fun. This was a long, long time ago. Summer, I had a summer job working at an outdoor theater company. And she was also working there, and she was in the costume shop. And so we actually met by her taking my measurements. You know, like she measured my inseam was like how we met. Like, how you doing? You know, like it was a, it was a, fun, a fun way to meet somebody. And... Uh, There has to be a start to the relationship. So how do you start a relationship with God? I mean, that can be a daunting thought. How do I do that? Well, it's actually much more simple than you'd think because God wants a relationship with you already. So you don't have to win over God. God's already in love with you, already wants to see you come to Him. He's waiting. Just like the father in the story of the prodigal son, peeking over the horizon every day, hoping the son will come home. So we don't have to talk God into anything. He's ready. So all we need to do is basically 
We repent, which means to consider your life and decide, you know what, I'm going to go with God now. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to not do all those things. I'm not going to run from God anymore. I'm just going to go be with the God that loves me. I'm going to go follow the God that loves me. So you repent. You ask God for forgiveness. Like, I'm sorry. You know, some things I did I didn't mean to do. Some things I did I did mean to do. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. Then forgiveness is there. And then you just pledge your life to go with him. Lord, I want to go with you. Help me. Help me walk with you. Show me. Help me. And you've now made contact with God. God hears you. The Bible says that when someone does that, that there are angels in heaven that rejoice, that it's a, it's a party in heaven happens when someone reinitiates or initiates their relationship with God. It has to start. In our circles, we call that getting saved. You know, like, I got forgiven, I, I got saved from the wrath of God, I've got, I got saved from not knowing God anymore, and I've come into that relationship. And so that is the first way that we, we reach up is to just initiate that relationship with God, but then we need to maintain that relationship. You know, it's not just enough to meet somebody once and then you have a relationship. You have to maintain it. You've got to continue to reach up. That's what Jesus is talking about with abiding in the vine, staying connected with the vine. The branches need to be connected to the vine. If we're disconnected, we wither. And we're ineffective in in very great danger. We must stay connected with the vine. So it's not enough to just start that relationship. We must maintain that relationship. How do we maintain that relationship with God? How do we continue to reach up? Well, we maintain it through a variety of different ways. Our, Our prayer and worship life is an important way that we maintain our relationship We learn the scriptures, learn about God through his word, and we maintain that relationship also by living out our calling, living out what God has called us to do. And that, you know, has a couple of different forms. The first one is to be the person God's called you to be, to have the character God has called you to have. And that's the the rise up part, you know, rise up out of the junk, holding you down into who God has truly called you to be. And then to do the things, God's also called us to do things, and that's the reach out. That's where we, we do different things. We'll talk about those in the next couple of weeks. But today we're going to talk about the reach up part, and we're going to focus on the worship part and the, the worship part of reaching up, of staying connected with God through worship. So I want to reread John 15, verse 5. This was in the middle of what we read. Jesus here says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So if we want to get to the place where we're changing this world, where we're thermostats instead of just thermometers, we don't just dive into changing the world. We need to stay connected with God. That's the first step. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. It'll just happen naturally. It'll start to happen without you even realizing. But if you disconnect from God and then just go try to do great things for God, it doesn't work. We have to stay connected with God. So that's the first step in making a difference is reaching up, staying connected with God, maintaining that relationship. And so today we're going to talk about worship. How do we worship God? What does that mean? In our circles, worship often means the song service part or, you know, the music part of your life with God. 
that's a very important part of worship, but it's also a very incomplete definition of worship. Worship covers so many different things. You know, giving an offering is a part of worship. You see in the scriptures, many sacrifices were made as part of worship to God. I've got a list here from a book. It's a book that's real good. It's called Sacred Pathways by Gary Thomas. And it's talking about the fact that different people are built differently by God to worship God in different ways. So we don't all worship the same way. And this is a list of nine ways that people worship God. And you might find yourself not really connecting with the music part of church. Some people, they're just not music people. It doesn't, it doesn't connect with them like some other people. The other people, they're, they're music people and they just are just in the presence of God instantly with, with worshiping in song. But uh, let me just read some of these other possibilities. And, and people are complicated. We have more than one way that we worship God and they inter interwoven and all that. Uh, and it can change over time as well. But here's just this list from the book Sacred Pathways by Gary Thomas. There's naturalists who love God best outdoors. The people that they, just in church when they're out in the woods. There's sensates. These are people who love a lot of activity and sights and sounds and smells going on. You know, they love the big conference with the big boards flashing and they like the, you know, the incense and smoke and all that stuff. They like sounds and smells and the, the visual things. They're sensates. There's traditionalists who connect with God through a ritual and symbol. There are aesthetics who love God in solitude and simplicity. And maybe somebody like Mother Teresa, I got to see her, her room where she lived, and it was just a little room, probably about six by ten, just a little room. She lived there her whole life, had one little desk and one little bed, that was it. She also fit into some of these other categories. There's the activists, those who love God through confrontation and, you know, fighting to advance the kingdom of God. Somebody like the Apostle Paul would be an activist. There are caregivers who, who love God and worship God through serving others. There are enthusiasts, people who love God through mystery and celebration, outward displays. These are the ones that love to, to wave flags in the worship service, you know, like they just get that, which uh, we don't wave flags because it scares new people. But, uh, you know... But there's nothing wrong with waving flags. If, if that's you worshiping God, that's great. Contemplatives, people who love God through adoration. They just speak out the, their worship of God. And then there are the intellectuals, the people who love God with their mind. They, they love to read the scriptures and, and try to understand how everything fits together. And so there's all these different ways that people worship God. So don't feel that it has to be just uh, I really like that song, and I'm going to raise my hands, and that's only what worship is. But let me tell you that worshiping in song, it's a long, long-standing way that people have worshiped God. In fact, the whole book of Psalms is the millennia's old songbook for the nation of Israel. They worshiped in song uh, way back in the temple before Christ. It was part of how God was worshiped. There are examples in the New Testament. I want to read some examples of worshiping in song from the New Testament. We'll go to Ephesians chapter 5 verses 19 and 20. 
Here, the Apostle Paul is talking to the church in Ephesus about how they should relate to each other, how they need to interact with one another. And he says, speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So be people with a song in your heart. You know, it's, it's part of how we're to relate to each other. It's part of how we're to relate to God through song. Matthew chapter 26, starting in verse 27, the first part you might be very, very familiar with, but then the, the verse at the end, sometimes people don't notice. So let's read this. This is in the Last Supper. Jesus is, is in the middle of, you know, the bread and the wine. And so here's where we pick it up. Then he took the cup, gave thanks, and offered it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. So at the Last Supper, the conclusion of the Last Supper was the disciples with Jesus singing together. It was the cap of the moment the initiation of what we celebrate through Holy Communion was singing a hymn together. Then let's go to Acts chapter 16, a beautiful moment in time, a painful moment, but a beautiful moment. This is when Paul and Silas are thrown in prison and they've been trying to spread the gospel and they ran into some serious problems. And so we see the problems and we see the response. Acts 16, starting verse 23 After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. Upon receiving such orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. So here we see Paul and Silas in the midst of a horrible trial. They were severely flogged. Now, I wouldn't want to be flogged in a Roman colony 2,000 years ago. I wouldn't want to be severely flogged in a Roman colony 2,000 years ago. And their response was to pray out loud and to sing to God together. We see worshiping in song all through the scriptures. The Psalms, we see Jesus and his disciples, we see the believers of the early church singing together, worshiping God in song. But it's very important that we not miss the holy part of music and just have it be about music. Because that's where it becomes a disaster, is when it's just music. The worship team is basically the choir director. And the congregation is the choir. And the Lord is the audience. That's how this works. It's a holy moment of worshiping God where we come together and we sing the praises of God. We declare His glory. We sing of the love we have for God. We must not miss the holy part of worshiping in song and only have the music part. You know, I've been in worship services where the music was terrible, but the worship was great. (laughs) Have you been in any services like that? where the music is just not that good, but the worship is fantastic. I've been on a worship team. I remember this was maybe 15 years ago where we finally played everything right. And we were so happy, except it was just empty. We didn't miss a note. We didn't sing a wrong word. Everybody started and stopped and ebbed and flowed just right. And we just thought, man, what did we miss? Worship didn't happen. We sang a song. 
The music can be great and there be great worship, but the music can be great and there's no worship. The music can be poor. I mean, if it's super distracting, it's going to be hard. (laughs) But the music can be subpar and the worship can be great because it's about loving God. It's about worshiping and honoring God. It's about declaring His praises. It's about connecting with God, reaching up to God and worshiping God. That's not about music, but music is a tool to help us make a connection with God. Now, this can be challenging for you, worshiping in song, if your sacred pathway doesn't involve music. You know what I mean? Like if you're just not a music person, you're totally tone deaf, you got no rhythm, you don't really understand why we're doing the same words over and over again, you know, like it just doesn't make sense. Uh, and you feel just sort of awkward. You know, it can be challenging. I encourage you, find the way that you worship God. If you're a by-yourself-in-the-woods kind of person, go worship God by yourself in the woods. Now, there's other things we need to do, too. You know, we need to have our one-on-one time with God, but we need our connections with people, too. We need to have individuals. We need to have close relationships. We need to be part of a big group thing. We need to be serving. But, hey, you can worship God by yourself in the woods. Absolutely. Absolutely. You're not going to be part of a big missions group by yourself in the woods, but you know, you can worship God. We need to be part of missions. We need to be part of the other things of God as well. But find the ways that you worship God and don't feel bad that maybe you don't get music as much as somebody else does. Find the way that you worship God and live it out. Now, how I've always understood worship, worshiping in song, I mean specifically, is that it's a form of prayer. It's a way that we pray. We're praying, we're connecting with God. You know, there's lots of different ways that we can pray. There's the prayers of thanks. You know, like you might pray for the food, and sometimes that becomes just kind of memorized thing, and it, it just is what it is and starts to lose its significance. But we need to give thanks to God for what He's provided for us, for the life we get to live, for the things that we have, the opportunities that we have in front of us. We need to pray prayers of thanks. We can pray intercessory prayers, you know, for a need. Like when we're praying for church planters, we're, we're praying an intercessory prayer. We're praying for someone else for a need. We can pray to get wisdom from God, to hear from God. In Luke chapter 6, verses 12 and 13, a really interesting little section about Jesus and his prayer life. So let's just read these couple of verses. One of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray, and he spent the night praying to God. When morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also designated apostles. So Jesus needed to hear from his father. Okay, I got these people following me. I need to pick 12 of them to be the the inner circle, to be the apostles. And he spent all night praying and asking God, what about this one? What about that one? What about Judas? (laughs) And he's praying and he hears from God. So he prayed to get answers to a specific question. We pray prayers of seeking. We can pray through something. You know, when Jesus was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane after the Last Supper, but before he's arrested, he's praying and he's praying and he's needing to gain strength from God to be able to face a trial. He's praying through like, hey, take this away, Lord. You know, Father, if you can take this cup from me, but your will be done, not my will. And he prays and he gets the strength to be able to face the trial. He prayed through to experience something, a power from God himself. I see worship as a mix of all of these types of prayer. And it's a little bit hard to define. But 
in worship, what we're trying to do is we're trying to enter into the presence of God and adore God, love God, just worship God, sing His praises, but make a connection with God and then have something imparted on us as we worship God. You know, the preaching time is kind of a clear time when you can learn from the scriptures and, you know, try to hear from God. But man, there's been times where the worship service, the the music time has been a time where I've gotten something wonderful from God. may not always be an understanding. People get healed sometimes just while they're singing. People get revelation. People receive, you know, a, a heart healing in the middle of worship. And so we're just going into the presence of God, trying to connect with God in order to love God and then receive some impartation from the presence of God.